Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17 today. So you can turn or if you have a digital Bible, that's what I use a lot. You can tap your way to Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen for you. And we would love to give you a Bible in a readable English translation. So you can be seeing where we're getting all this stuff that we're talking about. Uh, I hope you're doing well in this year where spring doesn't want to sprung. I don't know if you're feeling that the way I am. I have to keep telling my daughters that it's not time yet for like summer clothing and summer activities. Yesterday was prime for like pickleball and swimming, but no, it wasn't. It was cold and cloudy. And yet I woke up this morning to birds chirping. Birds are chirping because the birds know that at some point, spring will be springing. Like there will be a point at which the winter will release its grasp on us and our weekends, and we can start to do more fun things. Now, it's taking a second, but follow me. When I heard the birds singing, I was excited for spring. And I also thought, have you ever heard of Peter and the Wolf? The like old like kid story, and they have a different instrument for each of the different animals in the kid story. Dun, 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 dun. You know what I'm talking about? Very Russian, I think, but whatever. It's it's uh, just came into my head because I thought about the bird, and the bird in the the thing is a flute. And I thought the birds outside of my window. Well, boy, it would be really great if they were as good as that flute. Like, they're not very good singers outside. You know, poets always talk about and sing the praises of birds. Uh, My birds are terrible. They're kind of squawky and rusty sounding, and I don't know. It's not really great, especially when they're by your window. And I was thinking about redemption. You know, like, there will be a point. if If you're a gospel believer, then you believe that the world is currently separated from, from God, that, that things are not how they should be. And if you let your imagination run on that over a period of decades, you start identifying that in lots of places. You see that in the birds. You know, the birds are singing, but what would a redeemed bird sound like? Like, what would the new creation bird sound like when we're back in heaven and everything is like singing right at the right time as the sun rises over the mountains, and it's a beautiful, harmonious sound. And that took me to thinking about the parables that we've been talking about from Jesus. Because as Jesus describes our situation of separation from God, he describes it in similar terms. He describes it as someone who decided they wanted to sing their own music and walk away from the song that he's singing. They develop their own theme and sing it not in complement, but in contrast to what he's doing and the music that he is making. Uh, I don't know if you guys all read this on KSL, but apparently Utah now holds the record for the largest Dungeons and Dragons game that's ever been played. You were all following that. You knew that. Uh, but it happened down in Provo, I think. So maybe a Tolkien reference will work for, for this crowd. Uh, so he imagines kind of the falling of Satan in a similar way, that all of creation is singing along, and then you have this one note, this one angel that decides he wants to play his own song. He wants to have his own note, his own music, overwhelm what God was doing. And what ends up happening is he keeps blowing harder on this toneless loud, repetitive sound that was his sound. I don't know if you're following this or not, but, but I think the, the Scripture is describing you and I cutting ourselves off from the music that God is playing 
out of a desire to play our own song. To play our own song in contrast, not in complement to. He's already given you your own voice. He wants you to be your own thing within the music that he's playing. But, but we, we cut ourselves off. Last week, we talked about the parable of these two sons. And we talked about what was unique to one son was that he rejected the father. It's these two sons, the dad's there. And the younger son asked the dad to just pretend he's dead, go ahead and give him his inheritance, and he's going to go away to a far country and spend all of that on whatever he wants. And he does. He goes off to this far country, and he uses all that money on wild living and prostitution. Then he runs out. He comes back. The father shows incredible love towards his son. He runs out to meet him, and he grabs him while he's still dirty and puts the best robe on him and puts a ring on his finger and kills the fatted calf and throws a party. And then you have the other brother, the brother that was the good brother who stayed. And he finds that the father has thrown a party for this younger rebellious son. And he comes and he doesn't go into the party. He stands outside and makes the father come out to him. And he yells at the father, look, you, this son of yours goes away and squanders our property. And I have worked for you tirelessly. And you've never given me so much as a young goat to celebrate with my friends. And the father makes an appeal to him in the same way that he made an appeal to the younger brother. Now, when we tell that parable and we think about it, we're talking about these two brothers who live very differently, one who's very obedient and one who's very disobedient. And yet what Jesus is doing in the parable is to show you that both brothers are actually doing the worst disobedience you can do. They're separating themselves from the father. The younger son experiences isolation. He leaves the father. He chooses isolation, but he experiences isolation. When the money runs out and the famine hits, he's alone in a field with pigs, wishing he could eat what they were eating. When we cut ourselves off from his music, it's always going to end in that isolation, certainly in that discord, but ultimately in that famine. If you cut yourself off of life, how can you live? It's like insisting you'll eat anything as long as it's not food. It can't work. The younger son experiences that, and that hard lesson hits him in such a way that he comes back to the father. So I know I said 17, we're going there, but Luke 15, really quickly, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He walks up to the father. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Will you treat me as one of your hired servants? He makes a plan. He's going he's gonna to ask that he could try to earn his way back in. I know that I screwed up the music, but, but could I, you know, like, I don't know, like clean up after the other musicians? And maybe at some point, you know, I could play and not be first chair anymore, but be like 10th chair, you know, like be like one of the last kind of people and I just kind of help out with the rhythm a little bit or something. And the father gives him a totally new understanding, a totally new love when he, he grabs him and he brings him all the way back in. He puts the robe on the son. When he does that, he's saying, though you have cut yourself off from us, I am bringing you all the way back in. You don't have to become a workman. You're going to become again a son. He shows him a steadfast love, the kind of love that we sing about here at Hope Church. And that kind of love gives him a totally new identity. But if you've actually lived this story, you know, some of us have been this younger son, and you've experienced God's steadfast love as he brings you back, if you've actually lived that experience, and certainly if you're the older brother, I'll say it's, it's kind of hard to stay repentant to stay the younger brother. 
I, I think when he comes and he asks his dad, will you let me work my way back into your family? I think he actually does honestly kind of desire to do that. It's hard to repent and it's hard to stay repentant. It's hard for your heart to give up the desire to play your own music. Even though you know, if you've experienced this, you know it's going to end up in that isolation, in that desperation, in that famine. Here's what Jesus says. He, he talks about how you really do have to become this younger brother at some point in order to understand the love of God. He says in Luke 17, uh, Luke says this in 17 about a story of Jesus. So instead of this being a parable, a story told by Jesus, this is a story told about Jesus by Luke. It says in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem. So Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. It's a big theme in Luke. He's got his face set like a flint. He's working his way towards the city where he is going to be killed. He knows it. He's there to do it. That's his mission. And on his way to Jerusalem, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. What's happening? Well, in ancient times, if you had a skin infection, you were considered unclean, specifically within the Jewish context. So in the Mosaic Law, if you had a skin condition, and there's, if you actually do like a Bible reading plan where you try and work your way through the Old Testament at some point, you're going to hit that skin disease chapter, and you're going to be like, do I really need to be doing a Bible reading plan? <laughs> it's, it's lengthy, it's dermatological, it is specific. Uh, it's like graphic with pictures, you know, it's intense. But the reason that they did that is because they actually worked that system. It was a, a law that they actually used to administrate a culture. If you had a skin disease, that skin disease made you unclean. You were like medically unclean. You had an infectious disease, but you were also ceremonially unclean. God throughout the Old Testament is declaring that He is holy. And He is showing in His holiness that we are fallen. And you say, that's pretty severe, God. Why do you have to keep pointing that out? Well, if you don't understand that, if you don't understand there's a disease, then you can never pursue the cure. It's what this whole story is about, kids. So he says, no, no, no. If you have leprosy, you have to separate yourself from the culture. And these guys are their lepers. That's what they're doing. They're all together, and they're together because they all together are unclean. They're outside the city. And I want you to just sort of imagine that for a moment. Because they used to be something, right? They're not born leprous. They were probably born into a family. And some of them are blue collar and some of them are white collar. And then just as they're living their life, all of a sudden, one day, you know, the wife says, Hey, what's on the back of your neck? I don't know. What do you mean? What's on the back of my neck? And then it starts to spread. And they have late night discussions about whether or not to go see the priest. Well, I guess you're going to have to. I mean, your skin is changing. And when he goes to see the priest, that day the guy goes from being, you know, a laborer or whatever to living outside the city in a leper community to speaking to people that he loves by shouts because he has to stay far away. By knowing that he is unclean. It's a pretty intense situation. But I think the Lord allows it for a reason. Follow the story because there's something really sweet here. As they are separated from the people, they're outside the city. And outside the city, they get a chance to see Jesus. You can imagine their hope when they hear about this healer that is moving around, changing things, healing people, casting out demons. They see him coming, and of course, they're excited. They start screaming out, Jesus, 
Will you heal us? Have mercy on us. Verse 14, when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, I don't know that people get this. I think we are so ingrained into the like, Lord, let me work and then you'll bless me sort of logic that we assume that Jesus is telling them how to get healed. That he's saying to them, all right, great. This is going to be miraculous, but you got to do your part. You have to go and see the priest. If you'll go see him, then you'll be cleansed. But that doesn't actually make any sense. Think about it for a second. If you are a leper, you're not allowed to go into the city. If you're a leper, it's the priest who was the one who kicked you out of the city. Why would you go to a priest as a leper? He told them while they were leprous to go. You could go as a freed leper, as a healed leper, to be declared by the priest now clean. But what Jesus says to them as lepers is, go to the priests. And as they turn, so totally illogical, doesn't make any sense. But as they receive from him what he said, as they turn... It says that they are cleansed. God miraculously takes away that skin disease. He miraculously takes away the uncleanness that's on them. That's incredible. It's miraculous. But look at what happens next, because I think this is where we got to really dig into our hearts. It says in verse 15, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. So they're screaming at Jesus. Jesus says, go to see the priest and you'll be healed. They turn away from Jesus towards Jerusalem to go head back to see the priest. As they're walking, they realize that they're totally healed. Nine of them high five and keep moving. But one of them, as he realizes he's healed, turns back around towards Jesus. He turned back and praising God with a loud voice, he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks Now, this guy was a Samaritan. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleared, uh, cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is another place where we don't really understand what's happening. And the whole Samaritan thing's a little weird. If you're a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. If you're somebody who's not ethnically or religiously Jewish, then when you hear about Samaritans and you hear about them in Scripture, they seem sort of Jew-ish. They seem a lot like the Jews that you're seeing throughout the rest of Scripture. But for the Jewish people in Scripture, when they see Samaritans, they didn't really think Samaritans were that different from lepers. Here's why. For a Jewish person, they saw the Samaritans as people who had intermarried with the kingdoms around Israel. They were no longer ethnically Jewish. They were now sort of a big mix of a lot of things. That matters from an Old Testament context because people, as they mixed, would also mix their worship. They wouldn't just be, you know, kind of like a white guy who's also Protestant. They would be an Assyrian, which meant that they worshipped Assyrian gods. And so if you married into an Assyrian family, you now had this huge conflict about whether to continue to worship Jehovah or to also worship the Assyrian gods. The fact that they intermarried was a worship issue. It wasn't just an ethnicity issue, though, of course... People are terrible, and they see all kinds of reasons to hate one another. They not only intermarry and have these foreign gods and have this foreign religion, but they also sort of synergize it with Judaism, and they have their own temple. They have a different set of scriptures. They have their own retelling of history. 
Josephus, who is a historian that was writing in the first century, recounts fighting between first, uh, first century Jews and Samaritans that was so intense that Roman soldiers were called in. They hated each other. And part of the reason they hated each other was because they had taken steps that were so distinct from one another, though they sounded so similar, that the Jewish people would look at the Samaritans and say, unclean. So bring that back into the story of the ten lepers being cleansed. Jesus says to them, go see the the priest and he'll declare you clean. And as they turn, they're cleansed. Nine of them, the Jewish guys, realizing they're they're cleansed, run as fast as they can to go back to their old lives. Can you blame them? I don't know. I wouldn't. I tried to paint that picture of what it was like to realize you're a leper and get kicked out of the city. The suddenness, the finality, the exclusion. If somebody were to take that away, wouldn't you immediately want to run back to your old life? Run back to grab your kids and like, you know, talk to your friends and have a big hamburger. They couldn't, I don't know what they could do, but you know, like they would just go and like feast and enjoy and be clean and be back to their life. Like how fast would they rip off all of their leprous garments and put on new clothes? But it was the Samaritan who, being cleansed from his leprosy, still realizes that leprosy isn't his only problem. See, he's cleansed from his skin disease, but he can't run back to Jerusalem. He's a Samaritan. He realizes that he has a problem that's way bigger than the fact that he just had a skin problem. And realizing that he's been healed from that that skin problem by this guy who's a teacher of God... He turns to that teacher and instead of just experiencing healing, experiences love. Experiences relationship. Sits at Jesus' feet and praises him. And it's to this guy only that Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Your faith has restored you, not to your community, but to the capital C community of your relationship with God. That you're no longer fallen, bud. Your faith has made you well. Are you hearing what's being said? This is why it matters so much for us to understand our brokenness from God. This is why it matters so much for there to be a a leprosy that we need to recognize, an uncleanness that we need to see and kind of claim. If you can see it, then you can receive the healing. Think about the irony of this. Nobody wants to be a leper. Just like nobody wants to be Zacchaeus from two Sundays ago. Right? I don't want to be a leper. And God love you if you're short. I'm not, and I love it. You know, (laughs) pants are expensive, airplanes are rough. Other than that, it's fantastic. I absolutely love it. However, whether you're short or tall, nobody wants to be the social outcast that Zacchaeus was. And yet, it's Zacchaeus who meets Jesus. Nobody wants to be a leper, and yet it's the lepers who are outside the city who get to see Jesus walking between Samaria and Galilee. Do you see the irony? The ones who are unclean are the ones who are actually closest to knowing the Lord. It's the one who is the most unclean of the most unclean who's actually ready to receive the forgiveness that God gives. I talk about the birds and our whole world being fallen. Listen, if you go back to Genesis, and I'm going to take you there. If you go back to Genesis, God's clear about how that happened and why it happened. It says in Genesis 3, verse 4, 
the serpent said to the woman. So if, if you're tracking with me, we were talking about Luke and what happened with Jesus 2,000 years ago. Now we're back in the Garden of Eden. This is in the creation story. God has made this perfect place, made this world, and then made this perfect place and put Adam and Eve in this garden called the Garden of Eden. And there's a serpent that gets in there. He's the enemy. And the serpent says to the woman, they're talking about the, the one tree that God said that they can't eat from. And the woman exaggerates God's warning. And the serpent jumps in there and he says, oh, you will surely not die. He put this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he put it in the garden and said, you can eat of every other tree, just don't eat of this tree. It was the one law that they had. And the serpent comes up and he tempts the woman to eat it. And she says, no, we cannot eat it. If we even touch it, we're going to die. And the serpent said, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of that fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Do you see what's being tempted? Do you see what's being chosen? He's tempting her by saying that God's holding out on you that he knows your grand potential, your, the fact that you're actually kind of a threat to him, that you can live independent of him. And so he's, he's created this command to hide something good from you, to keep you down so that he can be up. And Eve responds to that temptation by seeing the pleasure of the fruit. It looked good. It was going to be good to eat, but also that it was desirable to make one wise, desirable to make one great. The hook that pulled her heart away from the Lord in that moment was the desire to go her own way. To have wisdom that is distinctly apart from God's wisdom. That's been the temptation from the beginning. Our hearts have fallen that exact same track. It's our nature still that we want the crown. We want to have our own song. We want to be in our own track. We desire to have things our way and not His. It's like a car that's out of alignment. I don't know. I go get my tires done. I know there's somewhere else I should go to get the alignment taken care of. But if you've ever had like a really junky car, there's a point where the alignment gets so bad that you try to steer it, but to go straight, you kind of have to steer left. Have you ever had a car that bad? Yeah, it's rough. If you have to steer straight, you got to turn left because the car's so out of alignment that you have to kind of hold the tires in tension. This is what I think God is describing our hearts as. Our hearts are always trying to pull back towards the way that we've always wanted to go, which is distinctly our own way. Even though if you've met Christ, you've come to declare that that own way is going to lead to your isolation, to a distortion of the music, ultimately to a famine, to being cut off from life. If you can confess that, if you can see that, then you can be the one person who can receive Jesus, but it, it's hard to stay there. It's hard to stay thankful. Verses 17 and 18, Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Do you see he's declaring this gratitude that should be there? Why is it not? Because our hearts always want to have things our own way. We want to describe it as our own. I bet those guys thought, boy, I really turned to go find the priest well because I'm cleansed. 
I must have obeyed Jesus' command really well because I'm cleansed. Instead of saying, thank you, Jesus, they say, good job, me. Do you see the irony of that? And yet, when you think about the prayerlessness of our churches, what is your level of gratitude, brother and sister? Oh, it's hard to stay thankful. But the creature's response to the creator should always be gratitude. How much more if we think about being recreated? We don't just talk about being saved by God, um, being created by God. We talk about being recreated by God. We're not just born, we're reborn in Christ. That's the idea of what it is to be saved. So you have this gratitude that should be your response, but it isn't. Uh, So I talk about Chesterton too much, but, but he has a great quote about thankfulness. And he says, we're children. We were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? I think that's so good. I hope that you understand that the stockings at Christmas look like socks. He's saying, well, why can't you be thankful that God gave you something to put in your socks ever, like to be created? Isn't that wonderful? Now, I want to just show you Chesterton for a second. Yeah, guy like looks like that, you think he's probably thankful for anything he gets, <laughs> right? But uh, yeah, that's the whole point of the sermon, kids, is that we should be thankful for anything we get. How great for God to create us, but how great... Let's take that down. Oh, okay. How great for God to recreate us. How is it possible that we don't live in an ecstasy of gratitude every second of every day? Well, the only way to not live in that gratitude is to give yourself some credit for how things are going. Yeah, I was leprous, but I turned really well to go be cleansed by the priest, and so now I can kind of live my own life and do my own thing. It's only the Samaritan who realizes that he really is lost and he really needs to be accepted by this Jesus. And it's only, see the irony of it, it's only the person who's really rejected who actually gets accepted. Did you see it? And having that acceptance means that he's able to be grateful. He's able to somewhat more fully stay accepted. Think about this for a second. The Samaritan gets to be at Jesus' feet. The leprous Samaritan gets to be with the king. Go a little further with it. Kind of imagine in your head. Jesus is Lord of all, but he's living as this homeless guy. He's living kind of as this itinerant preacher. He's suffering with us. But we know that he's God. And that, yeah, he's going to get resurrected from the dead, and one day he's going to come back. And he won't just come back as Jesus. He'll come back as Jesus. He'll come back as triumphant Jesus. That's what Revelation talks about. And that king will also allow this Samaritan to sit on his couch with him. It's crazy that God would allow us to be near to him. But just take a second to imagine what it would be like to be a Samaritan who gets gets to be with Jesus. He gets to be with the king. If he can remember that he is a Samaritan who is leprous, he's going to live in this constant excitement about how Jesus has chosen to accept him. But if for a second he starts to think that he deserves to be on that couch, 
Imagine his horror every time he slips up. Every time his Samaritan theology or Samaritan accent gets in the way and jars the conversation among the Jews. Every time he slipped up, he would have to then say, I've got to try and work my way back. I've got to try and get back from what I've done. I've got to start earning my way again. And he would go further and further and further from realizing the grace that is necessary for his salvation. Is that not us too? Oh man, I'm just trying to help you to see. It's so hard to stay thankful. It's so hard to stay accepted until you can really confess. The whole point of the gospel is not to say, here, good people, let me teach you how to live well. The point of the gospel is to say, hey, broken people. That's why we're singing these songs about being broken and poor and needy. Hey, hey, leprous people. Hey, uh, people that have been isolated, people that have been rejected, you people. People that are rejected for a reason. Shameful people. Come to the Lord who loves you. Just walk back into the hometown. He's waiting. He's watching the horizon to run and to grab you and to bring him to yourself, bring you to himself. The, the message of the gospel is how good it is to be forgiven by God. So what do you do with your sin? What do you do with your leprosy? Well, you confess and repent and then enjoy the love of God. So if you go further in the New Testament, you get past the Gospels into the the work that the apostles are doing as they're bringing the Gospel out to the world. You get this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And he says in Romans 4, to the one who does not work, doesn't try to earn, but instead believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So like the Samaritan who actually turns to believe in the one who has given him this justification made him clear before the law. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David, who also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he's going to quote from Psalm 32. Go read Psalm 32 today, please. But he says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin." you and I have that desire to go play our own song, to try and cover our sin ourselves and pretend that we're not sinful so that we can jump back into our own lives and our own pleasures. Listen, if you can really understand the younger brother, the Zacchaeus, the Samaritan experience, then you can really receive this kind of forgiveness, this kind of acceptance. If you say that you have experienced it or that you have believed it and you have received it, then let me ask you, is it, is it hard in your life to stay that level of grateful, to be confident in that level of acceptance? If not, then, then I'm asking you to do what we're commanding to do all the time, which is repent and believe the gospel. Remember again your stance before a holy God and the love that he's given you through Christ. Bathe in it daily. Your heart's going to keep pulling you. You've got that alignment problem. Your heart's going to keep pulling you away, but you've got to keep remembering the love that God has given you and choosing that instead, choosing to submit to His melody rather than going off to play your own song. And if that's excruciatingly difficult, I agree. Let me just encourage you. Encourage you to go to the Scriptures, but encourage you to talk to somebody about it. David spoke last week about us being a confessional community. 
I can believe things that are true biblically. I can read lots of books that tell me the same thing the Bible tells me. But none of it seems to hit as well as when I talk to my wife or my dad or my friends. And they can know me and speak from an outside perspective, knowing who I really am, and say, you're forgiven and loved by God. I just want to invite you into that. I want to invite you to experience it. That's what this community is. And that's why we're about to do this baptism. We do a baptism as a community. Everybody we've ever baptized is horrified by the fact that they have to do it in front of people. Like, can't we just do this in like a bathtub or like somebody's pool or something? It's like, well, it's Utah, so we can do that like two months a year. No, we're going to do it inside. But the reason that we're going to do it inside in front of a community is because we need to see this message. We need to see it preached again, that we might remember again the gratitude we should have for a God who really saves us in this way. As Lindsay goes to be baptized, I want you to see that what she's agreeing with when she goes under the water, she's agreeing with the Samaritan. She's agreeing with the leper. She's agreeing with Zacchaeus that she's in need of a Savior. So she's submitting herself to that salvation. And in trusting Jesus, she's going to be raised to walk in a newness of life, a newness of gratitude and acceptance, a newness of love and worship. And so as you watch this today, please evaluate. Where are you? Have you received this? If you have, are you living in it? Really? I pray that you would. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that as we watch this this video and, and then see Lindsay baptized, Lord, that we would understand your gospel. Lord, that you would give us um, just a moment to be honest. You know, we lie most to ourselves probably. Just a moment to be honest about who we are and how we are before you. Lord, that we wouldn't be like the people in Jerusalem who hated Jesus. We wouldn't be like the lepers who received something from you and then ran away. But that we would be the lowest of the low who realize that we really are in need and then be lifted to the highest of highs to be with you and to be forgiven by you forever. Please preach this message to our hearts. Please save your people. We love you, sir. In your holy name we pray. Amen.